We've been talking about this series called Keep Jesus Weird. Now, this is part five of eight. And this is, we're following the first eight chapters of a New Testament book called Acts. And in the book of Acts, we have uh, chronicled this, uh, the, the beginnings of something called Christianity. But they didn't call it Christianity then in the book of Acts. They just called it the way, which sounds very culty. And I'm glad we dropped that brand. I guess we had some PR advice or something that had us drop the way because it does sound a little culty. But the first Christians weren't culty. They were just weird. And they were weird because the man they followed into this movement was the weirdest. And so I think the worst thing we can do to Jesus is to domesticate him or try and assimilate him into life as we know it today and what's normal. And we should try to keep Jesus weird. Thus the title of this series. Thus our artwork in the back done by our own, uh, I call them our artists in residence. That's not an official title, but Sebastian I think is here today somewhere. Sebastian, give me a good French. Whoop. Oh, there it is. Okay, Sebastian's right over there. We love you, man. Thank you for your help. You're usually over here. Just mixing it up. All right, that's okay. All right, we love you. Okay, so um, as we get into today's reading, what you're going to notice, I think, is a trend. You're going to start picking up on a trend now. At this point in the book of Acts, uh, in the fifth chapter, you're going to notice a trend of um, frequent persecutions of the first Christians. And uh, these, these believers were not allowed to freely live their faith they were not given that privilege. And so anytime Christians spoke openly about their faith, they faced um, persecution, real persecution, punishment, shame, humiliation, pain, sometimes even death. And what I want to talk about today is how that experience among the first Christians was only the beginning. And in fact, uh, it's something that has continued to follow Christians and Christianity for the last 2,000 years. Just about any place Christianity has gone, Christians have faced persecutions. And so that raises all kinds of questions um, for me and I'm sure for many of you. And I, I hope to tackle some of those questions uh, today. Um, now, as little as you might hear about this, um, the truth is that Persecution of Christians in the world today is actually escalating. It's on the rise, um, and a recent study released by the uh, British government, actually, a secular study, indicated that it's really not even close. Christians are the most persecuted religious group across the world. In some parts of the world in 2019, Christians face near genocide levels of persecution according to this study. And so this is serious and it is um, intense. And this is uh, the part before I go any further with that, that I need to step back and say, when we talk about this intense scrutiny and persecution that many Christians are facing in the world, I'm not talking about us, typically. And I know there are very vocal Christian types that like to whine and bellyache about how hard it is to be a Christian in America. By and large, I just wanna own the fact that Christians in America are not facing persecution the way Christians in other parts of the world are. Um, you know, we have like, I think two 
live stream viewers in China and one in Sri Lanka. If that's you, I'm talking to you. The rest of you, <laughs> probably not, because really all we've got day to day in terms of persecution is that one baker in Colorado that they took to the Supreme Court, and then, and then there's, uh, you know, the occasional Walmart greeter that won't say Merry Christmas. They'll just say <laughs> Happy Holidays. <laughs> they still say Happy Holidays. They don't say Miserable Holidays. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's not persecution. All right? Now, if they gave the Walmart greeters machetes, that would be a different story. If you had to choose between saying Merry Christmas and, and getting your head chopped off, like at Walmart, <laughs> which I don't know why, I can't help think clean up on off. <laughs> anyway, that's awful. But like if that was the choice they gave you at Walmart in America, different story. We'd be talking about persecution in America today. We'd probably be doing it secretly, not live streaming it. <laughs> we, would, we would probably be living a different reality. So we're talking mostly about persecution in other parts of the world, but still these are conversations that we should be having. And I am a little bit ashamed of the fact that I have not to this point ever really spoken about Christian uh, persecution, Christians being persecuted in 2019. Uh, it's something we must talk more about. Some of the hot spots that are identified in most recent studies for Christians living most in the crosshairs of uh, persecution are North Korea, uh, where apparently is the, it's the worst place to live as a Christian. Uh, the Kim family has identified, for three generations now, has identified Christianity as the number one enemy of the state which is really shocking, considering how many enemies they have. <laughs> like Christianity is at the top of the list. Can you imagine being a Christian there? And there's other places where living as a Christian is, is almost untenable. It's hard to survive. You know, um, uh, some parts of the Holy Land, for example, in Palestine, Palestinian territories, um, it's uh, untenable. In fact, there were, uh, I was looking at the numbers this week, there were a hunt, wait, uh, there were, um, 1.5 million Christians living in the Palestinian territories in 2003, and this year there's less than 150,000. That's not a lot of time for that many people to either be done away with or to be chased off their, uh, their own homeland um, because of their faith. And there's places like Afghanistan and some African countries as well where it's tough. But rising in the ranks of difficult countries or, or persecuting countries is China. The number one largest country by population, 1.4 billion people call China home, um, the second largest economy in the world, and the third largest military, soon, soon to be second largest military in the world. And China has um, begun, basically, uh, they wouldn't call it this, colonizing, like they're going everywhere. And that's why this really matters, um, what I'm about to tell you about Christianity in China. But uh, in the last uh, several years, the communist Chinese government has really zeroed in on Christians and on churches. Hundreds of churches have been burned or demolished uh, without any warning. Um, uh, thousands of pastors have been arrested, um, placed in solitary confinement, um, faced beatings, floggings, uh, death in some cases. Um, you just, you find uh, one story after another of, of Christians being persecuted, hundreds of crosses being burned or taken down. Uh, the government uh, came up with their own Bible, a communist Bible, which is the only Bible that's legal to own 
in China. And um, obviously, as you would expect, it doesn't quite line up with, <laughs> with what we know the Bible to actually say. But maybe, maybe the creepiest thing about what's going on in China right now is uh, this thing called social credit. And if you haven't read about this, I encourage you to. Everyone should know about this by now. It should be on the front page of every major newspaper. It is the creepiest stuff I've ever read in my life. It's like Cyberdyne Network, Skynet, Terminator stuff. Like the Chinese government has installed 200 million surveillance cameras in public and private places throughout the country. 200 million surveillance cameras with facial recognition technology so they can track every citizen everywhere they go to see everything they buy, everyone they're with, everything they're doing. And if the government approves of where you go and who you're with and how you spend your money, you have a social credit score that will go up in real time. You can track it on your smartphone. And, and if you buy, let's say you're at the grocery store and you buy, let's say, bottled water. Let's say you buy water and no beer. That's a responsible choice. Your credit score will go up in real time, social credit. If you buy a lot of beer and no water, that's not responsible and your social credit score will go down. And what happens is that social credit score is the determining factor in uh, deciding how much and how often you're allowed to travel where you're allowed to go, where you're allowed to live, uh, and, when, and what kind of family you're allowed to marry into. Once you get married, where you're allowed to send your kids. Like there's a lot here. So imagine being a Christian in China, knowing that those cameras have been placed in churches as they have. Knowing that the government wants to know what kind of Bible you are carrying so that they can determine if you're a good citizen or not knowing that they want to know your frequency of worship. They even have been known to point these cameras at the offering boxes so they can tell who's giving to churches and how much. I've thought of that too. It's the weirdest coincidence. <laughs> I've never done it. I've never done it, I promise. But the thought has crossed my mind. It's very creepy. But imagine being a, a, a Christian in China. Like How weird and difficult would it be to live out your faith? So uh, what I want you to know is that today, from China to North Korea, from Africa to the Middle East, millions, hundreds of millions of our Christian brothers and sisters live every single day under the pressure of persecution and the fear of pain, loss, and death for their faith. It's been estimated that every day in 2019, 11 Christians across the world die for what they believe about Jesus, for their unwillingness to recant 11 a day. That's a small number, but when you consider every single day, including today, right now, that should get our attention. Now, over the last 2,000 years, Christianity, this thing called church, has evolved in a thousand different ways. We worship all kinds of different ways. We have different kinds of denominations. We have different kinds of organizational structures. But the one thing that's remained the same is that wherever authentic Christianity has gone, it has tended to face um, persecution. Every generation of believers has faced persecution in some parts of the world. And the question that I really had to ask myself is, why? Why? 
what makes Christians so awful? Like, why do governments always come after us? Why do they hate us? Is it, you know, our Christian radio? I, I don't know, that's bad. Is it that bad? Like, it can't be that bad. Like, what it, do we, is it, what is it about us that makes us so repulsive? And I think um, it's pretty clear that regimes, governments, powerful people come after Christians because Christianity has time and again offered everyday, ordinary people, the people those totalitarian regimes, be they secular or religious, have wanted to manipulate and control, those people that those regimes have profited from, Christianity has given these people their own power and freedom to live their life without being directed from above. When you authentically follow Jesus, you don't need a government to tell you how to behave. You don't need a government to tell you how to look after people. You don't need that. Like, Christians have, historically speaking, been law-abiding citizens, productive citizens, nonviolent citizens. The problem comes when we start showing people the way toward a better life, real life, freedom. And in the process of living freely, compelled by the love of Jesus, Christians have historically taken better care of the poor and the vulnerable in any given society they're a part of than any government ever could. And that infuriates them. And it has for years. There's evidence of this. I'm not just like being biased. I know I have bias, but I'm not just being biased. Like in 300 AD, a Roman emperor, Julian, was talking about the Christians, who he called at the time atheists because Christians refused to believe in Roman gods. So he called us atheists and he called us godless Galileans. And this is what he said. It is a scandal that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. It's the government's job to do this, man. Who do these people think they are? The people rely on us. And what happens if they if they don't rely on us anymore. What happens to us? It's a threat, Christianity is, to the institutions that run people's lives, and it always has been, and I hope that it always will be. Okay, let's dig in here to Acts 5. Uh, Acts 5, it's on your study guides. Uh, verses 25 to 32 is where I'm going to start. All right. Anybody wants to bring the pastor a tissue, you get extra credit today. Pastor's fighting a cold, if you can't tell. All right, nobody get up. Don't worry. I'm fine. Jeez. Thought y'all were Christians. Anyway. Okay, here's the confusing part and the study guides. Uh, I'm not starting at the top of the scripture. I'm going to start about halfway down because I wanted to get you home before 3 or 4 o'clock this afternoon. So Acts 5, verses 25 is where I'm going to start. 25 to 32. And this is uh, taking place in the Sanhedrin, which is like the Jewish court. Thank you, love. Aw, thank you, my new best friend. All right, uh, so this is taking place in the Jewish court called the Sanhedrin where um, Christians have been imprisoned by these guys for basically just preaching in Jesus' name. And this is what happens next, verse 25. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts. They're not in jail anymore. Whoops, teaching to the people. And at that, the captain of the temple guard went with his officers and brought the apostles. 
They did not use force. Now, what this says is that the Christian leaders they arrested went without resisting. It's important. Just give you an idea of how the Christians responded to persecution. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them if they did. And the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus, he said. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance. Now, Israel, at that time to those people, meant the, the Jewish people, and the leaders of the Jewish people were the Sanhedrin. And so he's saying that the name of Jesus implies repentance even for y'all who put him on a cross, and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. All right, last week I said that some people will always find Jesus offensive. This is why. Because to proclaim Jesus is to proclaim repentance for everybody. And the members of the Sanhedrin, just like, just, it's not just the Sanhedrin. It's like any self-righteous institution the insiders of the institution begin to think that repentance is needed but for everyone else. Those people need repentance. Those people need forgiveness. We're the good guys. And so for Jesus to be proclaimed was to call these even Sanhedrin members to repentance, which was the first thing I think that triggered them. They didn't think they, they needed to be. But in my experience, I don't know if y'all have experienced this, in my experience, people that are so triggered by conviction uh, typically are those who know deep down that they've done something wrong, that they're in need of forgiveness, but they're too proud to admit it. And I've been there. That's a dark place. That's, that's close to hell on earth right there. To know you need to repent, but to be too proud to repent, that's tough living. And I think that's where these Sadducees were. Um, and, and, you know, in my experience as well, Anytime somebody says something to you that triggers you like that uh, and you, you seem to kind of well up with rage or anger, that's a moment when you really need to check your heart because whatever really triggers you is probably something you need to seek repentance for. It's not about them. It's about you. So I think that's part of what's going on with these, uh, these leaders of the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter five. All right, uh, these, uh, these Sadducees, mostly Sadducees. There was one or two Pharisees on the Sanhedrin as well. I'll talk about them in a second. But what's interesting in this passage to me is they start to try and bargain with the Christians. They're like, throughout Acts four and five, they're like, hey guys, guys, I'm paraphrasing here. They, they're like, guys, we, we're your biggest fans here. Like, we, you keep doing what you're doing. We're fans of the good stuff. You're healing people. You're feeding people. Keep doing what you're doing. Just leave old what's-his-name out of it. Like, we'll support you. Just leave that guy's name out of it. 
because, you know, they knew they had played a part in Jesus' crucifixion. They felt guilty. They were too proud to admit it. They were triggered. Just leave his name out of it. And Peter's response, and the other Christians, it says, responded, look, we can't leave him out of this. He is this. And everything else comes out of this. And this is very important for us to hear today as Christians because there is always this pull in a society in pursuit of pluralism, which ours is, and it's well-intentioned. We don't want to offend anybody. We want to be inclusive in all of this, but it's very easy to replace the this with all of that and call all of that the this. But when you forget the this in pursuit of the that, the that doesn't matter. Am I even making sense? Like, Early on in the story's life, we made a covenant together. Our leaders said we will, in terms of where we send money and where we send volunteers, we will only partner with organizations that are overtly Jesus-centric, that either have it in their mission statement that they profess and proclaim Jesus, or they don't mind if our volunteers do. And, and you'd be surprised how many Christian-based organizations won't let you do that. And I know I sound a little Southern Baptist-y kind of like, nah, man, like that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm saying it's better to do it this way because eventually it will come to light that your values don't really align anyway. If uh, I know there's plenty of ecumenical organizations that are faith-based and doing good works, but in terms of our mission to share Jesus with the world, there's no that without a this. And Jesus is this. And so we, we partner with, with certain organizations that don't mind the this and, and that they lose grant money because of it. That's usually the reason. Organizations forsake the this. This is grant money, which I get. But, uh, but we've made that decision because the name of Jesus is so important. Let's keep going in Acts 5, uh, verse 33 to 42. So uh, when they heard Peter's response that we can't leave him out, Jesus, uh, the Sanhedrin, they were furious and they wanted to put him to death. Uh, that escalated quickly. Did you notice? Uh, that's, what, that's what shame does. You know, uh, that's what pride does. It escalates quickly. But a Pharisee, this is one of the few Pharisees on the Sanhedrin named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, was honored by all the people. That's true. Like historically, outside the Bible, this has been documented. Gamaliel, well-renowned Jewish teacher of the law. Um, later in the New Testament, it says that Gamaliel was Paul's mentor. The apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, Paul grew up a Pharisee, learning at the feet of Gamaliel. And, uh, and Gamaliel is also documented outside the Bible as a, a great teacher. He is the grandson of one of the greatest teachers in Israel's history. And the only reason I bring any of this up is that it is believed by Christians, it is documented in early Christianity, that after these events, Gamaliel converted to Christianity. He, was, uh, he died in 53 AD. He was sainted by the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's believed that he became a Christian and a, a leader in the church, which is interesting that the church for all of its radical reputation, was drawing in these guys like Gamaliel, academics, heady types, that were deep in this other worldview. He must have found something compelling. 
And here, here we go. He asked that the men be put outside for a little while so that they could talk just among themselves about the Christian guys. And then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. And then he's gonna go through a list of other men like Jesus who had come along and they had just kind of fallen on their faces on their own without the Sanhedrin getting involved. Like Theodos. He appeared claiming to be somebody. <laughs> I like that. Claiming to be somebody. And about 400 men rallied to him. So he had his own movement like Jesus. He was killed and all of his followers dispersed and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, appeared. Blah, blah, blah. He too was killed and all of his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail, like on its own. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. So he convinced them. They, they believed he was right. And so naturally, they called the apostles back in, and they had them flogged. <laughs> Unfortunate reversal there. I don't understand that line. Yeah, 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 you're right, Gamaliel. Bring him back. All right, flog him. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. But anyway, there was cognitive dissonance throughout this passage. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing, rejoicing after having been flogged rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Rejoicing with stripes on their backs. Rejoicing with the threat of torture looming over their heads every day. Rejoicing. From the very beginning, Christians who follow Jesus have welcomed hardship. We've welcomed even torture. Why are we gluttons for punishment? Do we like to have, you know, hardship stories to tell? No. We welcome those experiences because in every trial, there is an opportunity. And this is a deep truth. In every test, there is a moment for you to share and bear witness to the love of Jesus in ways that the good times may not afford you. Like good times are great and you can rejoice in the good times, but nobody will question why. Yeah, yeah, of course he's happy. He got a promotion. They got a new house. They got this. They're pregnant, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, they're happy, of course. I would be too. But if you can smile through your tears, if you can jump for joy with stripes on your back, if you can rejoice with the threat of death looming over you, like if you can find joy in that, people will wonder why and you'll be given an opportunity to bear witness to the only thing that really matters, your neighbors, your friends, your family, your city, knowing the love of Jesus for themselves. Nothing matters more than that. And nothing provides a better moment to break through to those around you and bear witness than a trial or a little pain might. When I look back on the Christians who survived all of this, I wonder not only how did the Christians do it, I wonder how Christianity did it. How 
given all of this, how did Christianity not only survive, but how has it become the world's most influential movement in history? And I look back on two different things that Christians have done during times of deep persecution and pain. And the first is they have remained faithful. They haven't buckled under the pressure. They haven't melted in the heat of the moment. They've remained faithful to the name of Jesus. And the second one that's clear in Acts is that these Christians in times of great trial stayed together. They stayed faithful and they stayed together. These guys were always together. You can, you'd be hard pressed to find a moment in Acts where a Christian was alone. They're always together, hanging out, doing life together, even when it was dangerous, even when they didn't know who around them were Christians like they were. And so Christians in many different times and places had to learn how to speak in code. And this is the coolest thing I discovered this week. The coolest thing, it made me jealous of Christians who lived in times of great persecution. I feel bored as a Christian in 21st century America. Compared to the lives other Christians have lived, guys, men, this might resonate with you, do you remember creating secret code languages with your friends back in school to like communicate so girls couldn't understand or, or how to cheat on a test so your teacher wouldn't understand? Like, we came up with all kinds of codes. Christians have been doing this for centuries. Y'all know that old Christian symbol, the fish, the ichthus, that every pretentious Christian had on his car about 15 years ago? There's a story there. And the story is that in times of great persecution, when a Christian was just kind of in a crowd, unsure who his friends were, who he or she was safe around, they could, um, in, in a social setting, just kind of do a little motion like this. Maybe there was uh, dirt on the floor, maybe not, but just do a little motion like this, nonchalantly, like a kid with ADD, da-da-da, you know, just kind of, da-da-da. And then, if the other person was in the know, if they, were, if they were one of us, the other person facing the other way would make the same, da-da-da, and they would create on the ground the, the ichthus, the fish. And the fish, obviously, is an important symbol in the Christian tradition for many reasons, but, but here was a symbol of safety, togetherness. It's a beautiful thing. And this wasn't even the coolest one I came across this week. There's this other thing that they've discovered. Uh, archaeologists have dug up in the ruins of ancient cities going all the way back to the 70s AD. You've heard of Pompeii and the volcano and how everything was destroyed. They uncovered one of these uh, solder squares in an in a ancient Pompeian ruin, and they found these squares all over the Mesopotamian and, and European regions, and they always look the same. There's, it's five Latin words, five-letter five Latin words. You can tell there's like some palindrome action going on up here, but the words are sator, or sator, arepo, tenet, opera, and rotas. And, um, and, and the words actually, they, they tried to translate them, and, and the translation of what these words meant, and, and it was always the same, by the way, across all these different regions and time, the same Latin words. And the meaning of the words was something like, he who works the plow sows the seed which sounds like a very innocuous kind of life motto. It's like one of those inspirational framed art things that they put in psychiatrist's office. You know, imagination. You know, it's like, it seems innocuous. 
But <laughs> after a while, linguists began to break this down because everybody was asking, like, why are these being found everywhere? Especially, why are they being found after the start of Christianity and only in areas where Christians were known to live and face persecution and trial? What they discovered is that there's something more going on here, as you might imagine. There's only one N in this uh, solder square. It's in the middle, uh, in the word tenet. And what they discovered is that taking that letter N, which is a Latin letter uh, that was called nun, and the word nun in Aramaic and Hebrew was a word meaning, guess what, fish. You put the N meaning fish in the middle. You can build a cross around it, taking the rest of the letters, and you can spell with all the other letters, using all the letters, you can spell vertically and horizontally, pater noster, which is Latin for our father, which is the title of Christianity's most important prayer. Well, that leaves four extra letters, two A's and two O's, and you can take those and place them in the four quadrants of the cross. A, of course, is the Greek symbol for Alpha. O is the Greek symbol for Omega. Jesus Christ, according to Christian Bible, is, is our Alpha and Omega, our beginning and our end. Like he's built into this cross. And so if you went into, I love this, this is so cool. Christianity was so much cooler then. Like if you went into somebody's house and they had one of those, he who holds the plow sows the seed, like all this stuff, you would know. We can talk about Jesus here. We're safe here. What a beautiful feeling that must have been. That's part of how Christians stayed alive. And what this tells me, what this indicates to me, is that the people that came up with these things, they wanted Jesus bad. They wanted this life bad. They were willing to give up everything for him. And I had to do some soul searching this week. I had to ask myself honestly, how bad do I want Jesus? What am I willing to give up for this real life full of pain and suffering? I don't know. Just being honest, I want you to know I'm not preaching at you, I'm with you here. Wednesday night, Gio and I had all our stuff packed up in a U-Haul. We didn't have a house for about 24 hours. So we thought, what are we gonna do for 24 hours with kids? without a house, and so we went to see Endgame, which was almost 24 hours long. Um, I was excited to see this Avengers Endgame movie, and uh, I, I ran to the concession stand, got the family seated, ran to the concession stand, got everybody's stuff, I was coming back, and I knew the previews had started. I did not want to miss the new Star Wars trailer. I was rushing back, and I saw a guy I was going this way, he was going that way. He looked at me and I looked at him. I thought he looks vaguely familiar. He looked at me like he recognized me. And of course, I'm thinking in my head, shoot. <laughs> These are pastor problems. Some of y'all don't understand. <laughs> and so then we just, we, we crossed paths and I thought I was in the clear. Then he said, hey. <clears throat> I said, yep. That's holding my popcorn stuff. Like $57 worth of merchandise. <laughs> so what? He said, aren't you a priest or something? And I said, nope. <laughs> I'm not even lying. That's totally true. 
I offer this as a confession. It wasn't a lie. I'm not a priest. But he did say or something, and I know what that meant. And I'm pretty sure I have some kind of a duty to stop and ask how he's doing. Maybe he was having like the worst day of his life. He just needed somebody to talk to. But it was a Star Wars trailer. <laughs> how bad do I want this, you know? What am I will? If I end up in heaven with all those Christians that made the, the solder square and all that stuff, like, what are we going to talk about? They will not have seen the Star Wars trailer. Like, what am I gonna have to say to them? How bad do we want this? How bad do you want this? How central is the gospel of Jesus Christ to your life? How much are you willing to hurt for the sake of bearing witness? To the truth. How much are you willing to give? Look, at some point, we've all got to take that look in the mirror. Like I did this week, we've all got to take a look in the mirror and decide to go back to the basics and repent again. And repent from our addiction to comfort and convenience and self-serving like entitlement. Never before has there been a Generation of Christians so wealthy, so able to impact the world in so many ways. And what do we do? We make excuses to get out of doing what we know we should be doing. Oh, well, who knows if it'll even make a difference. Well, you won't know if you don't try. <laughs> like, it's not even about the difference you make. It's about giving yourself away to Jesus without counting the cost. Like, I don't mean to be aggressive here, but do you understand, like, what we could do for the kingdom if our minds were right about suffering and pain? I mean, how many of us have capacity and an empty bedroom at home where a foster kid could be loved? How many of us, by skipping one vacation next year, could fund a new church start somewhere? Like I just feel, I, I feel like I'm being a little aggressive here. I'm sorry. But some of us need to hear this. That Jesus is our everything or he's nothing. Jesus is the this or he's nothing at all. Some of us, I think, need to find our way back to our knees and ask what it is that Jesus He's calling us to do and to give away, not to me or this church, to give away to the kingdom of God to make his name known. Nothing matters more. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this reminder. Help us to avoid the trap, the trap of comfort and convenience that tells us that all we're here to do is to live a more comfortable and easier life. Help us to see that is when we are broken and hurting, when we are sacrificial and empty, that we discover what real life is. We pray in your name, amen.